Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S dot C-O, and linkshus.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Samia. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? I am well, and it is near the end of the year. So how have you been holding up in London? Very, very good. We've had a surprisingly warm winter. Things that are happening are going along smoothly. You just published a blog post about the predictions for next year, right? Yes, we did. So I think this is the reason why I got you here, because this is going to be a two-parter. So I'm going to start from the first part, which is about the most memorable events for Asia for the year of 2015. And mm-hmm. I think you and I have, before this call, we actually already have some discussion about some of these items and we were still discussing it just before we turned on the <laughs> microphone. I think the first event I thought maybe the most interesting was probably the venture capital investments in Asia that have reached record high in China, India and Southeast Asia with unicorns. I think of the 141, depending whose number you want to think about, 39 of them are from Asia spending between wow. China, India, and Southeast Asia. The and number we've got is about 9.5 billion in VC funding in Q1 of 2015, and about 6,500 million plus funding rounds in Asia in the first three quarters of the year, which is a big, big numbers. These numbers are from CB Insights. But who are the dominating categories? E-commerce, it actually depends on the country you're looking at. In China, like you said, O2O is a pretty, pretty big category. In India right now, it's just e-commerce. It's one segment of O2O is dominating the conversation. And Southeast Asia is probably the same, which is the O2O or yeah. what people call on-demand apps yeah. and e-commerce as well. So yeah. actually, China didn't need any e-commerce. They are totally just O2O, basically. In China, the e-commerce companies are much more mature. Right? Alibaba, for example, they're already public. They've, they've gone past the unicorn stage. But you know, O2O, for example, is still in the unicorn stage. So India is further behind on the chain right now. So they're still in their, that e-commerce phase. You put a very good point here because in China now, the top 10 most valuable companies in the world, two of them are Alibaba and Tencent. Yeah. One of them is an e-commerce. The other one is a mobile messaging app. But then the other thing that's actually very interesting is that in this year, there were actually, according to Anup Bosom from 500 Startups, who actually did a very interesting report in analyzing all the funding rounds is that there's actually in volume wise India have more deals like for example 67% more and China actually in terms of value is higher than India by 3.9x. That really shows how much more mature China is than India. So you've got purchasing power that's much much higher. That means the companies generate more revenue and by definition are more valuable. On the flip side, that also means there's a lot of competition and user acquisition costs insane. And that also means VC funding might get a little bit more detached from reality at some point. But China and, is also happening the same thing. You have valuations that's going out of whack. And in fact, I was talking to a couple of VCs when I was in China and they were telling me that it's actually very similar to the Bay Area now in terms of unicorn valuations and people just giving money without even thinking, without looking at the business plan, without looking at the presentation or even looking at the prototype. I'm not really surprised given the numbers they're seeing. Well, what a VC is interested in is valuation appreciation. It's, it's happened in the last couple of rounds. They're hoping it's going to happen again. But at some point, 
unit economics are going to start to matter, right? At some point, a VC is going to want to exit and you can't really go file for an IPO when your economics are completely broken. And I think that becomes a major challenge when these VCs start looking at these, giving these companies a very hard look. I want to point out one interesting thing in Arnold's report as well. He's, he suggested that if you look at China versus India, if you uh-huh. take the seed stage series A, series B, all the way to late stage and you distribute the capital invested, if you look uh-huh. at China, the series D and the late stage deals are actually very large. Totals uh-huh. amounts about maybe 3 billion in terms of investment, whereas India is only still less than a billion. So in some sense, India hasn't got what I call a real unicorn from the viewpoint of an IPO public company. So who will be that first company that get into, from India that get into this late stage? To me, it's the e-commerce company. Snap, Deal, Flipkart. These are the companies that have sky-high valuations. They're already in deep into unicorn territory. Maybe even Ola Cabs. It's a little bit more on the O2O side. But they have that same economics issue that you see in China. It's just that the volume of those companies in India isn't that significant because of the nature of the market. So in India, you see a lot more Series A, Series B investments because they're earlier stage. There's a lot more experimentation going on. There are companies in those rounds that are going to be real winners in terms of actual unit economics as a sustainable business model. But at the same time, there will be one or two companies that see investments just because of the narrative, right? And that's what we see, we see in China as well. Like you said, because of this, the scale of those late-stage downs, China has become a mirror of Silicon Valley right now. And in Silicon Valley, you see more conservatism coming coming up. People are looking at the unit economics more closely. That's going to start happening in China as well. And then you would distill to India as well. But, yeah. but, but there's a very interesting fundamental difference because in China, it's still a very close market in terms of only the top Silicon Valley VCs and the Chinese VC firms that have access to the deals. Whereas in India, it's pretty much open play. You see SoftBank making a play in India. You see Tiger Global making a play in India. You also see Indians, homegrown VC firms such as SAIF partners who are also making a play in that ecosystem. It's actually a much bigger open play. So do you see India will eventually grow to be a bigger open market against China? You've got to look at the deal structure again. Like you pointed out, in China, because late-stage deals are so high, the competition for those deals also becomes pretty high. Because the late-stage deals are high, that means that there's a handful of companies that attract a significant portion of that value, right? In On India, because it's more on the Series A, Series B side, there's a lot more volume and a lot less value happening there. So that means because there's a lot of supply of companies in India, at least the, the ones that investors are chasing, it becomes more open. But as a market shifts more towards the late stage, when there are fewer large companies that are competing for these VC dollars, a market becomes more and more closed. I thought I just wanted to point out some of those categories that we didn't talk about, not e-commerce and on-demand, because we talk a lot about them. There is a spotlight country that I thought a lot of people have not really thought about is Japan. Japan has actually attracted a lot of investments, not just in the on-demand services space, but also in the spaces of gaming and media. I wanted to bring up the company Smart News because mm-hmm. there's an equivalent yep. in China called Today's Headlines. It's an aggregated news reader, yep. but it has a monetization model. And yep. I heard of US entrepreneurs trying to replicate those two apps in US, but they can't make it work at the moment. And this is a very interesting category that has not shown. I mean, Japan is probably the third country in Asia that has enough interesting deals that will go on the market as well. Just out of curiosity, I, I have come across some of smart news numbers, but I'm not familiar with the monetization model. Okay, so it's pretty simple. It's an aggregated news reader. You basically, yeah. it's like no different from a Feedly or a, any yeah. kind of news reading. But what yeah. I thought was interesting was they actually allow content owners to actually do advertising and subscription model. That means you could actually do your subscription model through their platform. And, okay. they, and they actually do 
things like e-commerce buying. One of the successful things that they have done is a little bit like very similar to what WeChat has done is that they allow people to monetize with the content. So imagine I talk about a particular product I like in a blog post, mm-hmm. they're able to get the user to make the transaction. Okay, after okay. just reading about. So it's very strong with brands. Mm-hmm. It's very, it has a very interesting business model. Mm-hmm. If I were to look at a uh, equivalent model in the US would be Medium, but Medium, Medium. has its own content. Okay, all right. Well, that, because Medium has its own content, that I think that makes it a little bit different. It's more difficult to replicate. Smart news can still be replicated because what they've done isn't really defensible. Yeah, you can you've allowed subscription through your platform, but that's pretty much something anyone can do. But they also do their own headlines. So Smart News and today's headlines are in Chinese, they're called Jingru Toutiao. They are starting to do their own content as well. So right. but I think it's more at the experimental stage because I think any news aggregator, whether we all we all love that to hear the story about Facebook have all the content in the world without yeah. having a content. But I think these are all lies because they have to end up putting some of their own content in to draw people in. Yeah, I'm yeah, sure have- the same with Airbnb, right? Airbnb claims that, yeah. they, yes, they have no listing content. No, that's not true because they took photo content about the house, housing listings. They went and knock on doors in New York to get <laughs> people's listings on the platform. So they do have their own content. Yeah, that's true. That, 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 that's a good comparison. So I, I think that in that, that sense, a lot of the other interesting companies that we haven't seen has gone out yet. The other space that we look at VC investments is hardware, right? DJI is still yeah. owning the headlines, I think we have a $600 million investment. Yeah. They are also in unicorn territory. So I think this probably sounds, sums up. Anything else you want to talk about the VC investments? Not at an aggregate level. I think we can dive into more specific areas. I think we were going to talk a little bit more in the part two where we talk about predictions. Yeah. So in the second event, uh, that's one of my favorite is actually Foxconn, Alibaba and SoftBank getting into an alliance with mm-hmm. Foxconn and Alibaba investing with, I think, US $118 million dollars in pepper and i think that this is an important event because this is the first time where asian companies are no longer behaving like silos you have the Mm -hmm. largest manufacturing company you have the largest e-commerce company and then you have the largest i would call them a private equity firm but you know Uh and also a telco coming together to dominate the conversation in tech by focusing on robotics which is a strength in japan and there's always this you know lament by myself that a lot of Japan has great tech, but it never gets out of Japan. But I don't think SoftBank is going to allow that to happen for robotics. All right, let's look at these three companies in, in total. So you've got yep. a hardware manufacturing company. You've basically got a consumer product distribution company. Mm. And then you've got telecom, which is connectivity. But I think the one thing that's missing here is artificial intelligence. So that's one thing that Asia's always had. Right? Asia's always got the upper hand with hardware. There's no one in the West that can remotely compete with Asia on hardware. But as that hardware becomes better, it becomes much more important to fix the brains of, of the operation. So on, for smartphones, that would be services. For robotics, that would be artificial intelligence. And I think I view artificial intelligence as a combination of a learning algorithm plus data. Because like Google's been doing with their self-driving cars, all of the cars are connected. So if one car learns something, all of the cars learn it. So it's, it's an equivalent of a hive mind. And I think that concept extends, extends towards robotics as well. Because a robot is much more valuable as long as it can respond to human needs and they've got to learn human needs. There are some specifics, but there's also something about humans in general that they that they need to learn. That's what I'm curious about. What companies in Asia can compete with, for example, a Google in artificial intelligence? I mean, the, the closest I would think of is Baidu Research Labs, right? I mean, I did the interview earlier a couple of 
weeks ago with Andrew Ng, which is the chief scientist, and the research labs actually generating revenue for the company in the deep learning side. So okay. they're able to help them to do artificial intelligence in the on-demand apps and a lot of the Baidu properties are actually using these to learn more information about the user. I would say okay. that if they needed a fourth player to help them to make Pepper happen, it's probably Baidu. I mean, if they don't want to work with Google, that's, that's what I assume, right? right? Well, that's, that's one other interesting part. If the capability is there, shouldn't Baidu have been involved in this from the beginning? So that brings up a question of focus. Are Asian companies too focused on the hardware side and not enough then do they not have enough of a focus on the AI and data side? I think the, there's also partially because Alibaba and SoftBank are related. Okay. And Jack Ma sits on SoftBank board, by the way. And okay. if you look at SoftBank's PL, you will oh. discover that one fifth of their revenue <laughs> is from the investment that they owned on Alibaba, which basically wow. generate 3,600x return, okay, from what they wow. invested till the point of when Alibaba IPO'd. Wow. So that, that itself would be interesting because they have that there is no relationship between Baidu and you know Alibaba and SoftBank, but may, that relationship may have to happen for the yeah. software on the software yeah, side. And of course, there is always this discussion about the proxy war between you know the BAT. It seems like Alibaba and Tencent seems to be ganging up on Baidu. So then, them collaborating is going to be an interesting development, nonetheless. You know, I always like to take the metaphor of the romance of three kingdoms because this is the most well-known story about the three kingdoms to the world. They are not usually two sides. The two bigger sides usually gang up the smaller one, but there are sometimes they also switch alliances. So All right. you, things may change depending yep. on needs. And then, of course, I didn't bring in Tencent. Tencent is also very strong in software capability too. But in terms of artificial intelligence, I know they've done nothing yet. Yeah, I, I would definitely separate AI and, and software. Software, so for example, I think that's the separation between Apple and Google. Apple is, an, is a fantastic software company, but because they don't engage with the academic community and they don't do as much publishing, they're not as effective in the artificial intelligence space. So that would, that would be Google's domain. I think that's, it's not a perfect parallel, but it is somewhat explanatory. What about the third event I thought would, would change the landscape was the Nintendo DNA deal. Now that's in Japan, right? <laughs> it changed yes. the landscape of yeah. gaming, not just in Japan, but the world. So what are your thoughts? We you look at the first attempt, Mitomo, I... The market was anticipating that for so long. And the moment it came out, the stock crashed by about 10%. And everyone was very, very disappointed because it looked like an attempt to tie mobile users to their console IP. And what the market was really hoping for is that they bring their console IP over to mobile and treat mobile as a standalone market. Instead, what they're trying to... It, it's, it's almost like their mobile business, at least with Mitomo, has been held hostage to their console business. My fear is that that's going to hamstring their strategy going forward. That, that their strategy is not going to be driven by market needs, but by the needs of their primary profit driver, which is for now consoles. It feels like Kodak all over again, right? It's like Kodak refused to... They, they were the ones who invented digital camera and then they... Yeah decided that, you know, because they need to maintain their film, so they didn't allow digital camera to flourish yeah. and in the end killed Kodak as a... Do you see Nintendo having this problem like the innovator's dilemma situation now? I hope not, but at their first attempt, from their first attempt, it looks to be the case, but they have another partnership going as well. They've got a partnership with Niantic Labs for Pokemon Go. That's coming out in 2016, and that look that's an augmented reality game, but it looks to be mobile-focused. I have higher hopes for that. Do you see Nintendo becoming more and more a content-play business rather than uh, actually a console gaming business? So that, that's an interesting way to look at it. I say they need to be a content business in terms of value creation, 
there are still ways to monetize hardware while becoming a content business so for example pokemon go has a along with the game they're going to have a wearable called pokemon go plus that buzzes and lets you know if there is a pokemon nearby so pokemon go is an ingress like location based game that help where you can capture pokemon in the real world that wearable is meant to enhance gameplay but you can still play without it that kind of hardware is I, I, it's wrong to call it an in app purchase but it's a real world good that enhances gameplay so it's basically what angry birds did with telematics except or t- sorry teleports except much more effective that could be a way to go how about the infusion of vr ar because now everybody's talking about this ar vr hype due to oculus uh, rift so does that work? does that come into the equation at some point i think i think it does and i think it should pokemon go is an ar game in for all intents and purposes and right now i'm not sure if your ar vr strategy should completely focus on those devices because we still don't know where they are you can still use smartphones for ar related gameplay like pokemon go has done i think it's important to keep an eye on those platforms One of the things I always say is that for any new platform it's only as valuable as the use cases it can offer that previous platforms did not offer even if it comes at a price so for example a smartphone wasn't as capable as a PC but because you carry it everywhere they it opened up use cases that weren't possible before that's that's one of my criticisms with smartwatches because they don't offer a use case like that but AR and VR I think can offer a use case so I think it's very important to keep them in mind but at the same time build for So for smartphones as well and that's something that a lot of content companies have been doing as well youtube's become almost entirely uh, vr compatible already there's a couple of i i know facebook is I, there was a, a report that facebook is working on a virtual reality video app as well i think it's definitely an area to keep an eye on so do you think that nintendo is becoming more like disney owning just content and not going into their technology side they should because that the ip is all on the content side right the ip is not on the hardware side the hardware the hardware was just a way to get ip into people's hands any last thoughts on nintendo i think we'll have more to talk about when we get get into predictions in terms of what's happened so far i think we've covered everything probably so and i would also want to make a little bit of segue to the next interesting event which is xiaomi it has a very challenging year it has a, most people it definitely saw its first sequential decline in sales possibly the first year on year decline based on some estimates people said it's in danger of missing its annual sales target i think it's that's clearly a case of low end disruptor that's in turn facing low end disruption from other oems they need to expand and move up market faster than low end disruptor disruptors are eating up their business and they haven't done that they need i think their overseas expansion has been very very slow Mm. and it needs to be much faster than that. Legion was saying something like they want to get 100 million smartphones sold, but I think by the nearing the third quarter they only get something like 50-55 million sold, that's all right. The number I heard was their original target was 100 million for this year. They lowered that to 80 million and now they're in, I, I don't know what that exact number is. I, I've heard it's closer to 70 million, but I'm not but I'm not sure about that. I think you probably with wait for their official numbers. to yeah. come out but also there's something interesting about why Xiaomi is having a challenging years because the empire strikes back <laughs> sorry need to put up plug a star wars film line because Huawei is uh-huh. now the third largest global smartphone market share with 8.7% and, and you can tell right Huawei has expanded globally so it's not they're not only active in China they're in the west they're they're in Europe they're in the US they're slowly you know grabbing market share from here here and there and that that's a bit of a blueprint I mean again partly it's because Huawei is such a large company they do have that patent to to play along, along with but Xiaomi has the funding they bought they bought more patents and they still haven't expanded overseas aggressively enough 
I think one of the things that people don't realize about Huawei is that they actually have another advantage that a lot of people don't talk about is that they have advantage with being a company that deliver carrier technology for telcos. And according to my conversation earlier with Kitty Fogg, which is the head of IDC for China in in one of the, the episodes, she was pointing out that Huawei had that the carrier advantage and they also have the chip advantage. So they design a lot of their phone hardware, the consumer side, to basically tie in with those networks. That's why their phones are actually much better because they have already an inherent hardware advantage. That's an interesting point. Uh, the relationship with carriers in the West definitely matters. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I guess if you're making low to mid-range hardware, the compatibility with the network matters. But again, if I, when I look at this on uh, on the scale of time, this is something that's going to get better and better, right? Even if off-the-shelf chips are going, maybe they won't be as good or as compatible as Huawei's chips are with these networks, but they're going to be compatible enough. Yes, in fact, you can see that Huawei is becoming like an Apple and Cisco combined based mm-hmm. on their strategy on enterprise and consumer hardware. And actually, Huawei actually took the Xiaomi playbook and do a high-end brand for their phones. So that was why you see Xiaomi is having so much problems in yep. China as well. Yeah, that brings me back to the point of the low-end disruptor facing low-end disruption. Huawei's moved up market because they've got higher-end brands and they've and they've moved west. Xiaomi's got they've they've tried the higher-end brands, but they haven't moved west. They've moved to India. They've seen a decent amount of success there, but they're maybe it's partly their distribution model because they've stayed online only and it's based on flash sales. They need to have that batch manufacturing done and because of that they need to have a more scaled expansion strategy but they clearly need to do it much faster and that comes to what i'm going to ask you next is that where do you think xiaomi would basically focus on where they have to go into all their other categories like their air purifiers well i don't know what other home products they are making or should they just focus on making sure that they are high-end smartphone market or they should go after Apple, basically. So I don't see that being as a being an either or situation. What I see with Xiaomi is their smartphone sales are the way to create an installed base of users, and their you know home products, anything else that they're selling, is a higher margin way to monetize the more loyal segment of that users. Because the, I'm sure the margins on those air purifiers are likely to be much higher than the margins of their smartphone. The fact that they can sell multiple products to the same set of users over and over again, but that the relationship exists only because of their smartphone. If their goal is to expand their install base, they need to make sure that they are competing with everyone. They need to move up market, move west, expand their install base. If they're, if they're happy with their current install base and they want to grow revenues, then you can sell pretty much anything you want. Home product, you know, additional services, and I'm not sure what else they have in their pipeline, maybe more content. So it's, it's a monetization versus growth question. Which makes me come to this point, right? Is Xiaomi still a hardware consumer electronics company or is it a services company? This always gets me a little bit confused about where they really are. So it depends on how you look at the company. So a lot of people look at share of revenue and assume that they're a hardware company. I'm not sure that's necessarily the case because if they're viewing smartphone sales as a distribution model, that's not their primary revenue drive, right? If they make more of a profit margin from, from online services, from sales of home products, then they're much more of a services company than they are of a uh, smartphone company. I guess Xiaomi, we have to observe for the next few quarters and see 
where they will be heading. I'd say it's more than a, qu- a few quarters. It's It depends on whether they solve their growth conundrum or not. If they don't solve their growth conundrum, they're going to be focused much more on monetization and then we'll be able to tell whether they're a consumer electronics company or a services company. If they're able to restart their growth, then a lot of analysts are going to call them a consumer electronics company again. And that comes to the last event, which is WeChat going mainstream. They are now 650 million users in the third quarter of 2015. Mm-hmm. In the past year, I've heard for the first time from a senior executive from a top US company. His name is Dave Marcus from Facebook. He accepts that Facebook is learning from WeChat. And mm-hmm. you're seeing WeChat now being covered extensively by many people in the Western media. I think A16Z's Connie yeah. was always talking about them and yeah. how great they are. And I think in our show, we talk a lot about even talk about WeChat growth hacking. We talk about WeChat as a service itself and how influential they are in the Chinese market. Here lies the number one question. Is WeChat mm-hmm. going to be the roadmap for platforms with no operating system capabilities such as Facebook? As to how one can innovate against the mobile operating system layer, which is not fair because it's owned by Apple and Google at the moment. I think companies like Facebook are going to try, but they're not going to be very successful. And the reason I say that is because one of the reasons why WeChat and Line have become messaging platforms is first, their parent companies were originally basically web portals, which is, you know, NM, or they owned web portals. So you've got Tencent here and you've got NHN there. That meant that A, they had a massive range of services that they could put on their messaging app. Two, that means they could get access to a large base of users because of their market power. Three, because they could reach out to other service providers and act as gatekeepers precisely because of their market power. And fourth, because their domestic market where they had that market power was much more tolerant or had a preference for additional features as opposed to simplicity. So even when you look at something like something like games, when you compare a 10 cent game to a game that's popular in the West, the interface of the games popular in the West is much simpler. They, they don't have as many options, as many things that you can do. Those games are seen in Asia as being too simplistic. And when you look at 10 cents games, they are much closer to what a PC core game is like. And th- those are the real popular games, right? And there's lots of fe- features, lots of options, lots of things you can do. And that's because that's something that culture prefers. I'm not sure Facebook can implement that sort of of a user interface with with those many features in the West. And second, they're not really, even though Facebook does have strong market power, they don't really have that platform power in the West that they do here. The only company that I can think of that had that web portal asset maybe about five years ago was Yahoo. But I think we're far away from those days. Well, if you have listened to the podcast in, I think, episode five, my friend Smitty, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Explain the story of they did try. In fact, mm-hmm. he submitted a plan with Jerry Young's backing to do mm-hmm. a WeChat-like app. It's just uh-huh. that at that point, Yahoo is in so much mess that mm-hmm. no one wants to do it. And they totally missed the messaging app. Play. Both Yahoo and the messaging ecosystem would have been probably in a very different place today if that went through. Yes, and of course, the other player who also missed the boat was Microsoft. I mean, people forgot about the Microsoft Messenger. I, I, I'm just impressed by the fact that everybody's memory <laughs> has just gone. Like, you know, what happened to Microsoft Messenger? Oh, okay. MSN Messenger, that's what, that's what it was called. Right? Yes, correct, correct. And it, 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 it seems that everybody just remember Yahoo Messenger and they don't remember MSN. So I, I'm find, I find it a little bit interesting that, you know, our memories <laughs> are so short. That's a good point. <laughs> And I, and of course, I have to be fair. I mean, we talk about Line, we talk about WeChat, we also miss Kakaotalk, which is, of course, the weakest of the three, but because they are dominating in the Korea market. Yeah, but I think they are largely fit the same profile. And they, they are owned by NHN and they still had that web portal backing that Line and WeChat also enjoyed. 
and they have the same cultural roots do you think that this particular ui ux of wechat it totally cannot be adapted for the western world even for europe i, I mean, think it's going in, to be in europe there is an app called telegram which is very popular now i mean they can also go that route too it's possible I think if it's implemented in the West, it's got to be again. It's got to be a very, very different interface. On WeChat, you've got many options. You've got many tabs. You've got brand pages, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. On I think that what Telegram is doing is much more bots, right? So it's it's another contact you can message. Something like what Slack is doing. I think that could be a way to go. I'm not sure how it's going to be implemented at scale, but that is one possible. If that's the case, then what would you see would be the biggest challenge for Facebook in the Asia Pacific market? That means the Messenger app won't be the most dominant place. Still, the big blue app in Asia, I think you've got the WeChat lines and Talks already dominating. I don't think those messaging markets are are going anywhere. For Facebook, the bigger question is: Do they want their users on WhatsApp or do they want the users on Facebook Messenger? So there are. Markets like the US, that's where Facebook Messenger is its stronghold, right? So you've got markets like India, Brazil, very, very large markets, and even most of Europe. Uh, WhatsApp is very, very influential. So do you want to get those users on Facebook Messenger where you are experimenting with a lot of these features or do you want to keep them on WhatsApp in the hope that at some point you find a monetization model for it? That's probably the biggest five events that we think of that is important to Asia in 2015. Are there any side events that you want to talk about just before we close this? Not specific to Asia. This is something I've been talking about a few times. I've talked about a few times this year, which is the investments of self-driving cars from Google, Uber, etc. To me, this is very interesting because especially... It's very interesting that Uber is interested in that because the competitive advantage of ride-sharing companies is basically the network effect between drivers and riders. When you have self-driving cars that come into the equation, one side of the network entirely goes away, which is the drivers. And so the competitive advantage purely becomes the accessibility of the cars to users, which means the number of cars you have, the fleet size, and the reliability, which is the data or artificial intelligence driving those cars. So in the short run, this benefits any company that has the best self-driving car tech. And right now, that's assumed to be Google. But once those self-driving cars become good enough, that means any ride-sharing company can get access to the access to those cars. The biggest value would be in licensing that tech to those ride-sharing companies. It brings me to what a report from Bloomberg said, which is Google's building their own ride-sharing platform for self-driving cars. So in the short term, if they've got the best, the largest fleet size and the most reliable cars, that's a pretty solid monetization model. But long term, they'll have to become more of a tech licensor. You think that they're going to end up doing the same thing with self-driving car operating system like the way they did with Android? And so that, you know, globally, even like Ola Cabs or Didi or Grab Taxi could use them? I mean, it in the context like, of Asia. It looks like the eventual customers, those self-driving cars, you're not selling these devices to consumers anymore. But the manufacturers are also important. So what Google did was with Android was partner with started with Motorola and a couple of those other manufacturers and completely commoditize that layer. And that's how I think that's going to happen again with cars. So right now, Google's in a partnership with Ford. Uh, the key word being non-exclusive partnership, which is, I think, very similar to what uh, the deal was with Motorola. Do you think that Ford has just sold itself to the devil? Yes, but they had no, I don't think they have a choice. I don't think today's car companies are in a position where they can build a decent self-driving car platform. And if you don't partner with those companies, partner with a Google, you're basically signing your own death wish. And of course, you right. also have Apple on the other side who could easily be yeah. a self-driving car and yes. kill you as well at the same time. So you don't have a choice. You don't have a choice. And, and like Motorola didn't have a choice when they signed up with Google. And Samsung didn't have a choice when they signed up with Google. And I pity Samsung who's now taking all the damage. It's all about what can, once, okay, you have signed your soul over to the devil. What can you do to keep, to sort of reinvent your revenue model? Are there services that that cars can that car companies can put out i don't know what kind of services those would those would be that would 
be complimentary with a Google self-driving car tech. Those are the questions they have to ask themselves now. Just to close off before that, I have a fascinating theory about the current investments that's ongoing. Do you know that Tiger Global now owns Uber, Grab Taxi, DD, and Ola Cabs? They're the investor well, yeah. of all that. If you could think about it, if I were to do a SoftBank play, and SoftBank is so involved in all these companies, I mean, mm. in order for self-driving cars to work, I mean, humans are not going to accept nobody driving the car. It would be, if you were to think of the transition point for a self-driving car, you'd probably have to put a robot there. And who owns the largest robots? SoftBank. That's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, some of the tech journalists don't agree with me, but if I were to look at it in terms of a strategic play, which is also mm. explains why SoftBank is so gung-ho on these taxi demand companies because that is the best application of having a robot there because it gives the assurance behaviorally to a human being that someone is still driving the car yeah apart from the similarities with total recall i i think you might have a point there just in terms of getting an initial comfort level there but i think that's that's more of a transitory period yeah you do get let's say you get robots into these cars but at some point people start becoming comfortable that you know what this is an automated car whether that's a robot or not and mm. that robot is automated anyway so does that robot really need to be there uh, of course, Pepper can do a lot of other things. If you, I mean, I've recently been to Osaka and I was standing there and the robot was reading my facial reactions when I was trying to talk to him in a different language. He was trying to guess what I want. That's what you have because this is happening in everywhere in Japan now where you have a Pepper robot outside a, a retail store, whether it's in a SoftBank outlet or in a, a Mizumo bank. They are actually starting to gather a lot of data too about the consumers. Oh, okay, that data is going to be coming very, very handy. It brings me back to what I said initially. Yeah. Data is, the, is gold in artificial intelligence but i'm going to hold your thoughts because i know we're going to come back with a part two but before i get to the part two where do my audience find you samir i blog at tech-thoughts.net and you can find me on twitter at samir underscore sing 17 and then we will get back in the next episode